welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. So, um, as this is GW of Texas, and as some of you know, both of my parents were alcoholics. So I was first in Al-Anon, starting in 1976, and then later in ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics, when I found, as soon as I found out about that. Uh, and then later in SA and other 12-step programs. Our speaker today is somewhat similar. She has a lot of experience in lots of various 12-step programs, all of which came from the original Alcoholics Anonymous. Like me, she also started an Al-Anon in 1987. Five years later, she found a sex program and has been sober in that program since July 4, 1990. She uh, spends most of her time in the Dallas-Fort Worth and Dallas County area. She has told her story and been a step speaker at almost every single group in all of Dallas County and the surrounding counties. She has sponsored over 47 people in Al-Anon and 12-step sex sex programs. And in her main group, she has served as a trusted servant in every capacity except chair. She also has a face-to-face group that she regularly attends in Oklahoma, and she is currently treasurer there. And again, in sex in uh, sex 12-step groups in Al-Anon, she has sponsored eight people in that Oklahoma group. Oh, my goodness. Joanne, it is such a joy. We've planned this for months. It is such a joy to have you here today. Thank you. You're up. Thank you. This is Joanne. I am in actually Denison, Texas, and I am uh, very, very grateful to have Al-Anon sobriety of 30 years and SA sobriety since 74 of 90. I went into SA much sooner than that, but I, I was not fully participating, and I wasn't really sure I belonged there for a while. Um, I do need to speak just a little bit about Al-Anon because Al-Anon is my primary program and the reason is because I have control issues and I want other people to be who I want them to be and that that is my primary struggle. Um, So I spend most of my time in Al-Anon at this point. Um, There's also no SA group in this area and it's a long drive to Dallas to get back in town. So I um, I do I, I don't like phone meetings and I preface that I know it's it's a blessing for many people whose schedules and whose locations are um, make it impossible for face to face meetings. But I, as I told GW earlier this morning, I'm really feeling disconnected when I can't see people, so I'm a little bit nervous today. I need to start with um, how I got into Al-Anon, and that was because I had a 15-year-old son who was drinking and drugging. 
Um, and I, I could not get this child to stop. And I thought I could control anything under God's great son, but I found out that, that I was powerless in this particular instance. So I went to Al-Anon rather grudgingly so that they could tell me how to get him to stop drinking. And of course, as we all know, that's, that's not a possibility. Um, there's a statement in a, in a book on Middle Eastern politics. It's not conference approved by anybody, but it ought to be. Um, and the material is in some form or another in most, um, I believe, conference approved literature. But this man was talking about um, Middle Eastern politics, and he was talking about uh, an elected official um, in the Middle East. And he said... You know, the thing that makes this man so dangerous is that he has the illusion of power coupled with the perception that he is a victim. And victims never look at their own behavior. Why should they? They're victims. And that was the absolute perfect definition for me when I walked into the doors of Al-Anon. I had had a, a... Actually, in retrospect, it, 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 was a, it was an okay childhood in terms of I, I never was without shelter. I never went hungry. I always had pretty clothes. Um, there was nothing material that was lacking in my life. I don't have the horror story of growing up in poverty and, and, and going hungry or any of that. But I lived in a very strange family. Um, from birth to about five, I was a very happy child. And my mother used to have a row of photographs in her hallway. She took pictures incessantly, and she had a, a picture of all of her children on each birthday. And if you look at my, birth, uh, my birthday photos from, from the time I was born until I was five years old, you saw a smiling, happy, beautiful little girl with, with dark curls and just, just bubbling over. And when you look at my, my birthday picture from year six until I finally got out from under my mother's camera, um, you see a six-year-old going on about 35. And what happened when I was five was that um, my father, who drank, he never called himself an alcoholic, and alcoholism is a self-diagnosing disease. But he certainly abused alcohol to get away from his emotional problems, and he uh had quite a few affairs with different women other than my mother. And when I was five, I was, was spending a lot of time with my paternal grandmother in, in Indiana because I had had a baby brother. And the, the reason I was given that I was spending so much time with my grandmother was that mother needed time to, to take care of the baby. And a five-year-old don't know the difference. And I was very happy at my grandmother's. She, she ran a huge apartment house in Fort Wayne. And uh, the tenants all loved me, and I got candy and presents and, and was everybody's little darling, and I thought it was great. Then one day, my father walked into my grandmother's house with a woman whom I knew. She was from the little town in Ohio where my parents lived. And they sat down. My father had been drinking. Um, I wasn't real sure what that meant at the time, except when he drank, he was happy and he talked. And when he wasn't, he didn't say much and he was always frowning. But he was happy that day, so I knew that he'd probably gone to the, the uh, bar and had a few beers. And, and he sat down and he looked at my grandmother and he said, Dorothy, the other woman, and I are going to run away together. We're in love, and, and we're 
going to run away together. Her husband, this was, I'm, I'm 77 years old, so this was 1944, and it was during World War II, and Dorothy's husband was serving in the Pacific. And apparently there had been an affair going on, and he said, um, we're going to take Dorothy's children with us, and we're going to leave my children with Helen, who was my mother. And I, my first thought wasn't about affairs being wrong. I didn't have those concepts yet. My first thought was, what in the hell is wrong with me? Why am I being left behind? I thought my father loved me. And I, I don't know what happened after that because my mind was just like, what's wrong with me? And that, that feeling created something in my life that I fight occasionally, even today, when something is taken very personally and that, that thought goes back to there must be something wrong with me. And there's not. I'm human. I have my assets and I have my liabilities. But there's nothing wrong with me in terms of being unlovable. Anyway, my, uh, <clears throat> my, my grandmother um, began to talk to him about this wasn't right and so forth and so on, and they left. And my father never left my mother. He died probably three months before they celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. I don't know why he didn't leave my mother. Um, I almost think in retrospect it would have been better if he had. But he, um, whether he listened to his mother, whether she shamed him into not, I, I don't know what happened. All I know is that life became hell at that point. Shortly thereafter, um, my grandmother bought the house that my parents were living in in this little town in Ohio and uh, moved in. Um, it was a 14-room house with a, an apartment suite on the side that could be rented out, and she moved into that apartment. And And the war began. Um, my mother was considered and was always called in my grandmother's home a shanty Irish bitch from across the tracks, and she was not. She was Irish. She was of railroad people. Uh, she'd grown up around a lot of drinking, but she was a lady. She was a school teacher, a wonderful educator. And she'd made the mistake of marrying my father, who had had um, the first 14 years of his life living with his grandparents and then being moved into my grandmother's house in Indiana and being um, probably as unhappy as, as any young man in his teens could be because my grandmother had a mental illness and it got progressively worse over the years. So my my thought is in retrospect, as I have worked through program and done my steps around my family of origin, that my mother was probably married by my father because my father knew his mother didn't like her and he was getting revenge towards his mother. And that's a horrible position uh, for her to have been in. But she made my father her God. And she would not leave him. In retrospect, again, she probably had a hard time leaving him because at that point in time, school teachers signed morals clauses and they weren't, to begin with, they weren't supposed to be married. And when that changed, my mother and father got married and then they weren't supposed to get divorced and they weren't employable if they got divorced. So she was really, in some ways, stuck in that, in that circle. Um, but my mother and my grandmother started fighting over where I could go and what I could do. And, and there, was, there were times when one would grab one arm and one would grab the other and pull on me like they were going to split me in half. 
my father would get called home from the office and uh, there would be a row and he would look at me and sort of shake his head and I pretty much co-victimed with him. I saw us from the time I was six years old on as both of us caught between these two women and I didn't like either one of these women. Um, I won't say that I hated my mother when I first got to Elon, but it came pretty close to that. I blamed her for um, everything. I looked at my father as drinking because he had to to escape his pain and not giving him any credit for the fact that he was making decisions that impacted my life adversely. But I excused him and I let him off the hook and I put it all on my mother. My grandmother, you know, children sometimes know things that adults don't. And I knew my grandmother was crazy. And I knew even at that young age that there's not much you can do with crazy. And in the 1940s, there wasn't a whole lot of help for crazy. There weren't psychologists and psychiatrists everywhere. There weren't the medications that there are now And in the first place. And in the second place, nobody was going to stand up to my grandmother because she was formidable. She was a rager, and she would just as soon throw something at you or knock you into a wall as she would say good morning. Um, I had a lot of, of, to start with, emotional and, and mental abuse. And the older I got, I had a lot of physical abuse. Um, when I was 11, my brother died of polio. Um, by that time, my parents had bought a house and they'd moved out from under my grandmother's roof. And I was told as they were moving in the moving process that I was to go tell them I didn't want to go with them. And I did because I, I didn't know, I didn't know where I belonged. They apparently didn't have a whole lot of interest in me from their actions. And at least my grandmother seemed to have a very possessive interest in me. And it, 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 who, a kid doesn't know at that age what to think about what the craziness is going on. So I went and told them and they said, okay. And they moved. It was only on the west to the west side of town. Um, but nevertheless, you know, sometimes I saw my parents on a regular basis. And sometimes when my mother and grandmother were fighting, I didn't see my parents for a year and two or two at the time. And I was under strict orders. If I ran into my parents downtown, I was not to speak to them. Um, it, it was a strange, was a very strange childhood. And it was the um, topic of conversation among my peers. And, you know, people, or the kids were always saying, why don't you live with your parents? Well, I didn't know why I didn't live with my parents. Um, why do you live with your grandmother? I don't know. You know, I'm just sort of a pawn in this game. And I became very, very um, privy to adult conversations. My grandmother continued to tell my my um, uh father that he shouldn't be doing what he was doing, uh, which was seeing other women. Uh, I was given the uh, very detailed reports of, of who he was seeing, and most of them were related to friends of mine in school, and that he was he was being foolish and he was running around with, with the articles of their jewelry and that type of thing in his pocket. He was drunk and he was making a fool of himself. And it was because my mother was a bad wife and a bad mother. And I didn't know who to believe. I just continued to try to survive. The older I got, um, the more some of that got um, transported a little closer to where I was living because 
my grandmother would tell me that my grandfather was having an affair. I was sent at the age of eight up to the front door of a house in Fort Wayne to hand a letter to my grandfather's boss that from my grandmother is telling him that he and uh, or his wife and my grandfather were having an affair. And I was told the contents of the letter and I handed it over and walked back to the car and thought, what's this going to mean? Well, it meant my grandfather lost his job. That's what it meant. And then life, he got another job, life went on and, and things just continued to sort of spiral up in terms of, of, violence, physical violence, anything that went wrong, no matter who she was angry with, it got taken out on me. The the second really founding block for my for my Al Anon program is the fact that that I began to get very angry. And I didn't know what to do with that anger because if I said anything I was going to get slapped against a wall or knocked down a flight of stairs or whatever. When I was when I was twelve, after my brother died, um, my parents actually left town. They moved to another place in Ohio, not very far away, but they wanted to get away from that town. And they had another child. I have a sister. He's twelve years and a day younger than I am, and we never lived under the same roof. We we maintain a relationship by working at it because we never had the growing up together experience. Um. When I was 12, I was, we were walking upstairs one night to go to bed, and my grandmother was discussing something that was had happened in um, this little town where we lived. I don't even remember what it was. And I was behind her, and I had an opinion about it. And I stated that opinion, not in a sarcastic way or a flippant way or a disrespectful way. But I just expressed my opinion. And she turned around and looked at me, and she was a, as I said, she was a ferocious looking woman. Um, she looked violent. And she said, you know, nobody wants you. Nobody loves you. You wouldn't have a place to live. You wouldn't have clothes on your back if it weren't for me. You will be who I tell you to be. You will think what I tell you to think. And that's an order. Well, you don't say anything when you're walking up a flight of stairs that would break your neck if you got pushed down them. So I stuffed it. And all of that, st- all of that anger began to build and I kept a really tight cork on it because I didn't want to get hit. I was tired of being hit. I was also tired of being tell- told that I couldn't be loved. I was not perfect. I wasn't smart enough. I couldn't do anything right. Now I was bringing home straight A's on my report card I was doing everything I was told to do, which was basically maid work. I basically grew up in what felt like a prison, and I was just another maid because she had three full-time maids, but I was working right along with them. Um, and I sat on it. And 12 was a defining year for me. Um, my birthday's in August, and shortly after that, uh, I decided that this this wasn't this life wasn't worth living. I, I, it was, it was painful. It was lonely. Nobody loved me. There was no nurture. There was no, there was no physical affection in my family. There were no validations of anything that I could ever do right because I never did anything good enough. So I um, decided that I just needed to end it. And living in a house with not knowing a whole lot about how one ended one's life, um, the only thing I could think of was I could swallow ammonia. And I don't recommend that for anybody who's 
suicidal. It's um, first of all, you can't really get it down after that first little gulp, and I had blisters on the inside of my mouth and down my esophagus for quite a while. Um, but I tried that and it didn't work, and and I was just depressed and and looking for anything that would save me. And there was a friend of the family who owned a furniture store in town, and he was known as a womanizer among the gossips. I didn't know whether that was true or not. I just knew he had a wife and four kids, was a block down the street, and he was a good friend of my grandmother's. And they were invited to the annual New Year's Eve party. Um, My grandfather was um, a wonderful cook and a wonderful host, and it was an honor to get invited to our house. It didn't happen but about twice a year, but there were were a couple of big parties a year. And so at the end of of the party, his his wife and my grandmother were walking around this enclosed front porch into the other side to get their coats. And he slipped up behind me and kissed me and put his hand on my breast and it felt good. And I just smiled at him. Um, and about two weeks later, I took a uh, payment to uh, the furniture store. My grandmother bought quite a bit of stuff from me when I delivered the monthly checks. And uh, he invited me into the back room, and um, we started having a sexual affair. Um, and that that affair lasted for seven years until I was 19, and he sold the furniture store. And all my life, all of my adult life, I've been going to a lot of different therapists for a lot of different reasons. And every one of them said to me, when I told them about that, said, you need to deal with your sex abuse issues. And I said, it wasn't abuse. I knew what I was doing. And it, it kept me alive. And that's a very true statement. It kept me alive. There was physical nurture. I could do something right, or so he told me. Um, and it gave me hope. Six years from then, when I graduated from high school, there was something beyond my grandmother's house, and I could get out in the world, and I could live, and I could do what I wanted to do. And sex was definitely something I wanted to do. So I continued to ignore the therapist, and I said, you know, I knew what I was doing was wrong. And the reason I said I knew it was wrong was because I was forced by my parents to go to church and Sunday school from the time I was a small child, and I was committing adultery. And it was wrong, and I knew it was wrong. I had no regrets about it. I just knew that it was wrong. And I took, at 12, I took on full responsibility for what was happening. Um, there were some other things I didn't realize about what it was feeding me. But anyway, I, I, when I was 19, um, he left the picture, and I was trapped again in the house with no place to go. Uh, no outlet for for what had been established, nothing. And I was about to go crazy. Um, And that ended when my grandfather committed suicide. I hadn't talked a whole lot about my grandfather. His whole part in the family was basically to uh, provide the money, and nobody paid a whole lot of attention to him other than that. And he got very depressed, and my grandmother's illness was getting worse, and it was one constant yelling match, and she was throwing things at him and, and calling him names. 
And a couple of weeks before he committed suicide, he walked to the living room one morning, and I was doing my household chores, and he said, uh, Honey, how do you stand this? And I just looked at him and shrugged my shoulders. It was like, what else am I going to do? I, you know, I'm, I'm here because I don't want to leave you alone with her because I did love him. He, he was, he was a man who taught me to cook. He was a man who taught me to entertain. He was a man who had a sense of life about him. And I really, um, regret that somehow I couldn't break through from my own depression and get him out of there because I probably could have. And it, I was in, in such self-centered grief that I, I, I couldn't see a way to do it. So I just shrugged my shoulders and went on. And two weeks later, um, he walked out of the back door one morning and said, goodbye, honey. And he said that every morning. And I said, goodbye. I'll see you tonight. And he walked out to the garage and got in his car. And I, I was so lost in on my own thought that I didn't notice that he hadn't pulled out. Uh, and my grandmother came across from, he was living on the apartment side of the, of the house, and she came across and said, go see why your grandfather hasn't pulled out of the garage. And so I got up and I walked out and I pulled him off a 22 with a hole in his head. Um, it's the first time I'd ever seen a dead person, and it, I was in total shock. I had no idea what to do. And I went inside and I told her, and I realized that she had his suicide note in her hand and his diamond ring, which he'd left on his dresser, and a check for $350, which was all the money he had left in the bank, which at that point was more than it is now, obviously. And she said, take this check and go to the bank and cash it before they find out he's dead. And I did what I was told to do. I got in the car. I drove to the bank. I cashed a check, and I came home. And she came out, and she pulled the gun out of his hand and threw it in the trunk of her car and said, nobody know he committed suicide. And I'm like, and how are you going to explain the fact he's got a bullet hole in his head? You take care of it. So I did. The deputy sheriff came, wanted to know why the, uh, the gun was in the trunk of the car, and I said, because she's crazy, and she doesn't want anybody to know he killed himself, so she took the gun and put it in the trunk of the car. And the deputy had known me since I was a little girl, and he accepted that and didn't ask any more questions. After he died, um, she became so violent that I feared for my life. I, I, it was hard to shut my eyes at night and go to sleep because I was afraid she was going to kill me. I got her moved out of the 14-room house, and I left. I came home. I had gotten a job in the meantime, and I came home with my paycheck one Friday night, and she grabbed it out of my hand and said, that's mine. And I don't know what broke inside of me, but I said, the hell it is. And I grabbed it back, and I walked out of the house in the middle of winter with the clothes on my back and never went back and had no regrets about never going back. Six months after I left, they put her in the insane asylum. She eventually got out, but she was um, basically a, a psychological um, invalid from then on. Um, when I got free from her, I had one thing in mind, and that was to hurt my parents as much as I could. And I cut loose, um, and, and I say this not flippantly, but I think I probably 
had every man in Dallas or in, in uh, Paulding County uh, at some time or another in the back seat of a car or a bed or whatever I could find standing up against a pole. It didn't matter. I was going to be such a disgrace to my parents that they would forever remember what they'd done to me. And I realized somewhere along the way that I was running out of men in Paulding County, so I needed to move. And I had a girlfriend from high school who was married with a couple of kids, and they were moving out to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, where her father and her stepmother lived. And I decided that I would go with them. So I did. And I ended up having an affair with her father, uh, who was 23 years older than I was. Um, but he was good in bed, and that was my criteria for relationships. If you were good in bed, let's get it on, and we'll make out whatever else we can out of this. But the, the sex is the only thing that matters. And I thought for a long time it was, it was about the biological appetite. And I came to find out in Al-Anon that it was not about the biological appetite. It was about control and manipulation and power. Because that's, I had none as a child. I had no power as a child. And sex gave me that power. And that's what I wanted. I wanted control and power. Whether it was about sex or whether it was about work or whether it was about other people being who I wanted them to be, I, that's what I wanted. Power made me happy. And it's the reason that Alan is still my primary um, um, program because it that still comes up in me you know you need to be who I want you to be if you're not who I want you to be there's something wrong with you it's not about me Alan changed all that for me um, besides giving me the ability to deal with a child that I loved dearly it um, it, it made me realize that I have no power Power comes from my higher power, and that's all the power I have. And if I had truly gone into my third step and given him the power to take over my life and to be in his care, that means I wait for God to tell me how to act, how to, how to speak, and what to do. Um, and I took, I took that program very, very seriously because I knew there was something wrong with my life. It, what I was doing might have looked okay on the outside, but it didn't feel right on the inside. Um, getting back to, to where I was, I ended up marrying my friend's father. Um, he was um, he was a good man, but you know, you grow up with an alcoholic, you tend to maybe marry an alcoholic, you end up with a mentally ill person. You're drawn to that. It's comfortable. It's familiar. You know what to do with it. You don't have to learn a new set of rules. You don't have to change. You know how to manipulate that to a certain extent and to survive in it. Johnny, would it be possible that you try to wrap up like in a few minutes? Um, sure. I'd like to have her finish. Uh, well, GW had said 50 minutes, so I wasn't that's okay. Okay. Just take it no, I, 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 Yeah, I can do that. Um, I can do the whole story. I, 
I didn't really start working on any of the sex issues in Al-Anon uh, until I was probably around 56. I was 47 when I went in. I was about 56. And I hadn't done the, that part of the fourth step. So when I, I got to that part of the fourth step, it was mainly about relationships with men, not about the one-night stands and all of the men who had no names. And the, the only way I could describe the occurrence was perhaps the location. Um, there were many of them, and I just sort of glanced over that and went into relationships. And there were three men that I came up with that I had hurt terribly uh, with my promiscuity because I was only interested in them for sex, and they were in love with me. And those three men are still on my men's list because of location and time. I don't even know if they're still alive. I can't. I've made an attempt to find all three of them, and I can't. And I put it out there to God that if I'm supposed to make an amends, that will happen. Um, when I was 60, um, and that is, is basically where I really started working uh, the SA program, I had an, an out-of-body experience. I was at a, a, a theater production in Los Angeles where a friend of mine was portraying a role of a perpetrator, and he was um, uh, using the daughter of his wife uh, as his uh, victim. And it was very graphic on stage, and I, I started having goosebumps. Um, and I, I felt like I was out of body watching it from up above the stage, and I was totally disassociated. I got back home. I was at a conference. I got back home to Dallas. I called my therapist, and he said, you need to get in here right now. And he had me do a sexual four-step, and he wanted the name of every person with whom I'd ever had a sexual encounter. And I could, I, it was a long, long list, and there were a lot of names, and there were a lot of places that I had to put the location or the event or the, because I couldn't remember names. I, I hadn't, sometimes I don't think I'd even bothered to ask. So we got through with it, and he said, and what were your motives? And that's when I came face-to-face with, with sex as power and control. More than, more than I can think that an alcoholic uses alcohol to escape pain, I, wasn't, I don't think I, it wasn't that. It was I wanted power and control. And I got, he referred me to a woman who was a recovering alcoholic, who is still my essay, she was also an essay, and she is still my essay sponsor. Um, and we went over um, my motives and where they came from, and they had begun to drop away with the work I had done as an Al-Anon uh, person. And I had, I had gotten back to a relationship with my mother and enjoyed 18 years with her before she died. Um, and I, I was beginning to see um, how my childhood had affected who I was. I hadn't realized I'd taken on a victim personality. I hadn't realized uh, how I was treating people or that a lot of times I didn't even care how I was treating people. I'd been a victim. The world owed me. And it came quite clear that the world didn't owe me anything, that victims have the responsibility to grow up after they'd been victimized. And I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't get that I had become a volunteer because I was making my own choices. That my mother didn't tell me to marry my first husband. My mother didn't tell me to make some of these decisions that I was making for my life. Um, 
Anyway, my sponsor started me on what is still my formula for relationships. And I say out of relationships pretty much because I haven't been able to find what meets that formula. But it comes straight out of the big book. There's a sex ideal where you put down what, what you have to have in a relationship out of another person. One of the things I needed was an equal. I picked men always who I saw as beneath me so that I could fix them, so that I could make them who I wanted them to be. Um, and then she took me to the AA 12 and 12, which is still my, my handbook. And it says that you, before you ever, ever have sexual intimacy with another person, you have spiritual intimacy, you have mental intimacy, you have emotional intimacy, and you have physical intimacy. And you know, it's not just talking to your sponsor and saying, yes, the potential's there. You know why it's there and you're practicing it. Um, I haven't been real fortunate in, in getting through that list. Um, and I don't think I'm picky. I just think that um, I've kept myself so busy with service work that I haven't perhaps made myself socially available to meet people. And that's okay. I'm, I am very happy today with... Um, the peace and the joy and the serenity that I found uh, not being sexual. It's it's not that I don't occasionally have that, gee, I, I think I'd like to investigate that, but it, it's, uh, there are times when it's like, but can you go through that again and find out that that's not going to work? So I stay busy with uh, a lot of service work. I sponsor a lot of people. Um, I'm very happy to report that my son is finally uh, in uh, treatment and, and clean from his heroin addiction, which he picked up 10 years after he became an alcoholic. Uh, my life is good. It's full. I have grandchildren. I have friends. And I have a God of my understanding. And I don't do anything without direction from the God of my understanding. There are times in situations where I meet somebody and I think, gee, that, that looks like that might be interesting and I'd like to get to know him better. And I, I look to God to tell me whether that's a yes or a no. And so far, most of the time, he's led me away from it. And that's his will for my life, and I'm quite happy with that. Um, I've got a lot more years behind me than I have in front of me. I'd like to think at some point in time that I might still find that relationship, but that's up to God and it's not up to me. So in the meantime, I trudge the road to happy destiny and um, enjoy my life. So I'll, I'll leave it at that and um, I thank you for asking me to speak. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.